a seat and kids can be dismissed to the Tabernacle Express program. I'd invite the rest of us if we could turn our Bibles to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12. Uh, if you want to follow along in the translation I'm working through, uh, the Pew Bible is there and the uh, Red Pew Bible and it's on page 70 in that. If you want to follow along with that, you're welcome to and looking at verses 29 to 42. Bitterness can be described as a sharp, pungent, or disagreeable flavor. Bitterness is actually something that's neither salty nor sour, but sometimes you can associate bitterness with some of those flavors. Many people are innately opposed to bitter tastes, and uh, they can, though, be acquired. Um, looking at that photo on the wall, that steaming cup of black nectar, can you smell that picture? Oh, who said no? Get out of here. The reality is, is everyone should be drinking black coffee. Now, you might disagree, and you're free to do so, and that's okay. But in the natural world of tastes and sensations, the, sta the stakes are really pretty low. It's really not something that, that we have to get ourselves really that worked up about. On the other hand, in the real world of the souls of men and women, there are some bitter truths which really can't be brushed aside as preferences. And to this point in the book of Exodus, we have been really dancing around one of those bitter truths. And I don't think we're really trying to avoid it. It's, it's just that we're talking about the eternal destiny of living souls, and it's really hard to talk about. And uh, in the process of delivering the Jews, there are those who lose their lives. And that's difficult. So as we walk through this, I want us to be thinking in terms of how these bitter truths can also contribute to the sweetness of our own salvation. And as hard as some of these things are to process, it would be better for us not to avoid them, but to think about them so that Christ and his salvation might be the more sweet. So as we read this text, I'm going to read verse 29. Uh, we've been working towards the final blow to Egypt, and it's all, it's here now. And so we're going to read verse 29 through 42, which is our text this morning. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, 
both you and the people of Israel and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened and kneeling, kneading bowls, being bound in the, up in their cloaks on their shoulders. And the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry for clothing, and the Lord has given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Now, the cost of Israel's deliverance is very high, very high. It's hard to really wrap our minds around the cost and the, the loss of, of human life. In fact, it might even be easier for us just to gloss over it because we can't, we can't fathom it and comprehend it. You know, when we think of natural disasters, it's, it's hard for us to put a face on it, and, and, and we're probably better helped if we did put a face on it. It becomes a whole lot more real when there is uh, a person that you're related to, for example, who has perhaps maybe in a, in, a, in, a, in a violent rage, maybe it's gun violence, and you know somebody who has been directly affected, it becomes much more real to you as a, as a human being because you can, you can identify with it. It's really hard to visualize when thousands perish underneath a mudslide or a tidal wave hits. That's really hard to, to process. Uh, Jesus, in his ministry, and was uh, overhearing a conversation about a random act of violence. And uh, he had heard people talking about how Pilate had slaughtered uh, Galileans and mixed it with the the blood of the sacrifices and they were just shocked by the brutality of the Roman overlords and Jesus asked those who were telling the news do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way and then he brought up another tragedy in which 18 people had been killed when the Tower of Siloam had fallen over and crushed them. And Jesus then stopped and listened. Maybe there was no answer, but he replied with the answer he was looking for. And he said, you know, if, if you don't all repent, 
we will all likewise perish. And when he did that, he was articulating some bitter truths that also manifest themselves in Exodus. And the first of these bitter truths is that we are all condemned to die. Whether it occurs in the collapse of a building, whether it's an act of gun violence, whether we live into our 80s, we're all condemned to die. And that's a bitter truth that we need to absorb. We need to take that and let it rest in our hearts. There is also another bitter truth, which is probably far more devastating, is that God is, no is under no obligation to save the whole world. That is a bitter truth that, on the other hand, is what makes the gospel so sweet. That is the actual reality of what grace is. That God, under no obligation, provided a mechanism so that we might be saved. Think of Romans chapter 5, verse 8, in which Paul said, God chose his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the sweetness of the gospel is incredibly sweet, yet this sweetness that we can, we can become so accustomed to it that we, we downplay the bitterness of other truths that we need to absorb, that we need to retain and hold in tension. And Christians, past and present, have not liked and rightly not enjoyed some of these bitter truths. And some Christians have tried to suppress these truths, maybe more aggressively. For example, a Christian leader in the third century by the name of Origen taught that God willed or had decreed from eternity that each and every person would finally be saved, even the devils. He believed in a universal, a universalism in which everyone would finally be saved. Now that thinking, as erroneous as it is, has popped up throughout the centuries. And probably many of us here have never heard of who Origen is, and I'm, that's okay. But the reality is, we can at times become practical universalists when we ignore these bitter truths. We can overlook the bitter truth that every death that is ever occurs is a direct result of the judgment of sin. We can also overlook the fact that God is not obligated to save any of us, and that might cause us to become very lax in the way we work and engage life if we forget these truths we will stop we won't be watchful and we won't be praying we won't be thinking about how we can be good evangelists and telling others of how they can escape because after all we are all condemned to die thomas watson is an old preacher puritan pastor author he very famously these words he said till sin be bitter Christ will not be sweet and I want to repeat that till sin be bitter Christ will not be sweet 
as we've been walking through this last plague, this last blow to Egypt, we've been walking through the elements of the Passover. We've been noting, for example, that the eating of bitter herbs and unleavened bread is an act of eating bitterness. It's not the sweet. And that sweet, that, that lack of sweetness is actually the bitterness that affects the sweetness of their salvation. Christ to which all of these elements point, took upon himself the bitterness so that we might have the sweetness. And when we enjoy God's grace, we need never to forget the realities of the bitterness from which we have been saved. And so the sermon this morning, I hope to focus on how that the salvation, salvation is much sweeter when we do not suppress the bitterness of sin. Think about how more effective we would be if we did not suppress these bitter truths. Christ would be so sweet in our mouths that it would be upon every conversation that we would have with people. If we could identify in our hearts the significance of God's grace towards us. But we have to meditate on this bitterness aspect because, again, we, we might want the sweets, but we have to deal with the bitterness and the reality that there is judgment that comes with sin. And we're going to look at the bitterness of sin in verse 29 through verse 36. And I've read this text, and the text is pretty pretty lackluster, I would say, in, in detail. But death is the topic. And thinking more broadly in terms of death in Scripture, death in the book of Romans is described as as if it had a territorial reign over all the affairs of mankind. You can see the, the word death having a reign in R Romans chapter 5. That word reign comes from the Greek word basileos, which means to have a kingdom or to have a hereditary monarchy. We don't have a hereditary monarchy. We have a presidency that rotates every four years. But I think it's an apt pictureness, an apt picture of the bitterness of what it would be like to live underneath of a tyrant. And we do live underneath of a tyrant called death. And we we live underneath of his rule and his reign. This death has a spouse. This king has a queen. And her name is sin. And she reigns in death. She's a seductress. And she looks like a serpent. She takes on so many pleasing shapes. And she looks winsome and innocent. But she entices us to lust. And the book of James says, when desire, uh, when, then when desire has come and conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. See, the territorial reign of death expands as all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Death is a greedy overlord, and he creates communities of despair that are propped up by an unbelief in God. Egypt is underneath the grip of the tyranny of death. And they are ruled by death, and they are enabled by human unbelief. 
You see, the loss of the firstborn in verses 29 through 30, this final blow is precipitated by nine subsequent blows that were designed to, forgive me, spank Pharaoh. They were designed to cause him to consider his ways. And his unbelief in God is evidenced by a refusal to repent and to reform his ways. His unbelief in God, and he continues to engage with the allure of sin that he can, he can be self-sovereign. He can be master of Egypt and disregard this Hebrew God. The offspring of this tryst is catastrophic death and the firstborn of his land. And the destroyer comes at midnight in verse 29. Now, we've been leading, as I said, up to this for some time. It's amazing just how lacking in detail uh, this is. We're told simply that, that from the greatest to the least, everyone suffered. The greatest being the heir to the throne, in verse 29 it says. To the least, that is the one who's incarcerated in prison, they also were struck. Now you think about death, and you think about how violent it is. We would all hope that maybe we would just go in our sleep. That would be very peaceful, we would think. We can't, I think we probably should not imagine that this, this was a peaceful passing in the night. Uh, the entry of the destroyer awakened and terrified homes. It's very likely that this destroyer, and we really don't have a lot of detail, he either came in unseen, unheard, perhaps it was a virus, perhaps it was a plague. I, we don't know exactly all what's going on here. Maybe it was very much the physical spirit presence. But somehow there was an awakening that occurred. Maybe there was some violent attack of illness in the night so that the, all the household is awakened because they're dealing with this person who, and they're trying to help him and, and they're slipping through their hands. And the destroyer came at midnight. In verse 30, we hear, we read of the great cry that occurs throughout the land. It was a horrible and convulsive night for these people. And I want us to recognize that death is a violent affair. There's no dignity in dying. In my homeland, Canada, medically assistance in dying is an acronym called MAID. Doesn't that sound sweet? but it is the interruption of life. And there is nothing good about death because death is our mortal enemy. And it is appropriate to cry when death comes. And the initial response to the Egyptians was so understandable, it was appropriate because death is not natural. It is not, it takes relationships away from us. The love that we have had between people, the joy that we were designed to have forever is snapped. It's taken away from us. 
See, death is a wicked prince. And we ought to despise him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. Our Western culture is strangely drawn to death's grip, to death's power. Death's power is enabled in this instance by Pharaoh's unbelief. You know, Egypt went to sleep, not even thinking. Pharaoh had been told the truth of what was going to happen, yet everyone went to sleep. They didn't even think about it. And they did not heed it because they did not believe in it. See, our world does not believe that death is a judgment caused by our sin. Sin increases in this context and the West, as I said, has a love affair with death, and because we don't believe that it's death is a judgment, we become participant in it because of our unbelief. We take life, and we fail to grasp how that in taking of life, we become participant in death's grip. Death is a destroyer, and death is unnatural. But let's look at Egypt's response to the death and how they responded. It traumatized them. It traumatized them. Verse 31 to 36, we have a couple responses verbalized in this text. Egypt is traumatized, terrified, because they, they, have, no, n they have no way to really escape it. If they, if they had, have had a way of escape, perhaps they would have repented and believed. And would they serve the true God? I don't know. But look at verse 31 to 32. It says that um, they, and he summoned Moses and Aaron by night. That's he, that's Pharaoh, and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, and you have said, and go, be gone, and bless me also. Pharaoh says, Get out. Messengers come. Uh, summoned in the sense of like, summoned from their house to respond to a messenger who's coming. And Pharaoh is cut to the heart because he's suffering, he's in pain, but yet his heart is still unwilling to submit. Pharaoh's a very inconsistent, we've seen him inconsistent throughout this whole journey through the plagues. He's defiant. He's defiant of the Lord and he cowers before him and He's kind of like a dog who barks. Have you ever seen a dog that barks and as soon as the person comes to the door, they run and hide under the bed? This is Pharaoh. Pharaoh has felt the wrath of God and, and the permission to take away his son. But now he's running in fear. He was big and bold, but now he is in fear. He doesn't admit that he is the one who caused this problem. He's unwilling to admit that he has created this, this condition for his people. And so now the Egyptians chime in and they are saying, now when can you go? Verse 33 through 36. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. They're saying, we shall all be dead. We shall all be dead. What an ironic statement. We shall all be dead is true. It's arising now because it feels very close. It's on their doorstep. It's in their home. It feels 
close. And this is a bitter truth that they're not yet willing, or they're at least starting to come to, is that at some point they all will die. And they're thinking that if they could just eject this people from the land, that maybe that would spare their lives. The truth is, they're all going to die. There's something else that we should note that's going on here. God is continually showing us through this process that he gives grace to the humble, but yet he opposes the proud. Chapter 12, verse 12, earlier on, we read this. In chapter 12, verse 12, uh, God says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. See, the Egyptians had venerated things other than God for so long that they had been so filled with a resistance to the true and living God, they had become proud in their own capacity to manage their own affairs. Pharaoh loved his self-sufficiency. He was like, he was like a very powerful aristocrat who could command his destiny. He could call people, kill people. He, he had sophistication. And he had attained to this greatness. And it says, if he is against the God of Israel, but he is exalting himself. And now God is opposing him and breaking him down. Midway through the plagues, God had said to Pharaoh, in chapter 9, verse 16, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. See, Pharaoh was powerful by worldly standards. He was powerful. He had noble birth. He had wealth. He was not a weakling. Why was God doing this to him? I think we can get an interpretation of this from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 through 29, where Paul says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose the low and despised in the world, even the things which are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human might boast in the presence of God. You see, Israel, whom God chose to save, was weak, low, despised. They were not even anything on the world stage. And this is another one of those bitter truths that I think we need to take into consideration is that when God saves the weak, the foolish, and the humble, he is at the same time bringing down judgment upon those who are proud. God is, as I said, is under no obligation to save the entire world. In fact, he intends to bring judgment upon the world. He, bring, he intends to bring judgment upon the proud. And this is a bitter truth that we ought to, take to heart and it would cause us to be more humble as believers to realize that our own salvation 
is an instrument of God's judgment upon the world. And do you know why people hate Christianity so much? This is it. Because our salvation is their judgment. You who have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ will one day, like Israel, sit in judgment against those who are too proud to stain their hearts with the blood of the Lamb. One day we will rise in judgment against those whom God has shamed, and it will be for his glory. Now those are bitter truths. And salvation, though, I think is sweeter when we take into account the bitterness that sin produces. I think it's important for us to realize we contribute nothing to our salvation other than the sin that made it necessary. Don't suppress that truth. You are not mighty. You are not noble. And you're not wise. But that's your glory. That's what makes salvation so beautiful. There is a sweetness to salvation. In verse 40 to 42, we read of this accounting of years. Here it is. Here is the break with Egypt. They're coming out. 430 years. And we see in this that God keeps his promises to us, as we think in a New Testament context, in Christ. God had kept his promises to Israel in the covenant made with Abraham. In a greater way, we have this in Christ. But this time marker reflects that God had made promises to Abraham. Back in Genesis, in chapter 15, we won't turn there, but there's a great, a great visual of a covenant ceremony in which Abraham falls asleep. And God slaughters animals and proceeds through the pieces as a demonstration that that he will keep the covenant with Abraham. Abraham is not able to keep the covenant, but God will keep it with him. And he tells Abraham that his descendants are going to go down to Egypt for four generations, but then will be taken out of the land again. And in that moment, God bound himself to Israel. And his bonds of love would not let his people go. While he allowed them to suffer for a while, Pharaoh was no match for God's love. Death is no match for God's love for us. Was this the doing of that generation in Egypt? At the time of Exodus, was, was this their own manufacture? Did they negotiate with Pharaoh to get release and get on good terms and be let go? No. This was already arranged. God had already made a promise, and now he's coming to make good on that promise. They simply had to believe. They simply had to put the blood over their doors. They simply had to trust in his great 
name. That was the good news. It was the sweetness of their salvation that the blood had already been given. It had already been planned. And I think we would do well to remember what Paul told to the Corinthians when they were so, they were so wrapped up in dispute. They were so divided within themselves because they had forgotten this truth. That our salvation is not something that we do. We're not wise. We're not noble. We're not mighty. We can't figure it out. But we don't have to. Because it was already done for us. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 through 31, because of him, that is God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We have a lot to be thankful for in Christ. God kept his promise. Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. We only have to receive it and accept it. God is keeping his promises to us today and tomorrow, and we see this in verse 42. Verse 42, I'll read it. It says, it was a night of watching of by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So the same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Israel was supposed to have a late night service. They were, in, they were supposed to, as part of their Passover ritual, spend the evening thinking and meditating about the seriousness of what had just occurred. Have you ever been a part of an, a watch night service? Like a watch night service where, I don't know, sometimes church traditions have, have like New Year's Eve, you, 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 a special night where the church gathers and there's sharing of testimonies and special prayers. Israel was supposed to have a kind of watch night service to encourage a sense of urgency, a sense that God was active. That sense of urgency continues into the epistles. Maybe you remember Peter in his epistle says, therefore prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is significant. Peter gets it. He gets it because at the Last Supper, when they enacted the Passover, they went out into the Garden of Gethsemane to do the watching and the praying. But Peter couldn't stay up. He couldn't keep his eyes open. He went and fell asleep. And now he fully has his eyes open. He recognizes that he is living in a day in which we are called to be watchful because we don't know the day nor the hour in which Christ will bring final deliverance for us. We will be lifted out of this Egypt and brought into our promised land. When will it appear? We do not know. It could happen at any moment. 
Jesus asked his disciples, could you not watch with me one hour? Maybe it's possible that we lose our focus because we, we forget the significance of the bitterness of sin. We overlook the truth that every death occurs as a judgment for sin. And it could be that we're overlooking the truth that God is not obligated to, to save any of us. Salvation becomes a part of judgment on others. Why have we been given this great gift? It ought to propel us to be watchful, to be sober, to be looking around, to be engaged in prayer. This world is sliding into death, but we are being saved for eternal life. It's a significant difference. Watson said, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Do we believe this to be the case? Is Christ sweet in our mouths? Do we do we humble ourselves under these truths and live for him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for time.